Okay, here's the question you sent us. It's a doozy. Is there an actual hell? Is there an actual hell? Well, let's define the terms. You have some uh, pictures on screen. Is, um, is this heaven? Is this hell? Uh, is this heaven? Is uh, this hell? Did the contrast between the last two images strike some fear in your heart? Is this heaven? You should be thinking used to be. (laughs) Are you missing hugging people? I am freaking out. Sometimes I'm a hug terrorist. Like people show up in my backyard, I just, I screw it, I don't care. I put my mouth, I hug them. Is this heaven? Is this hell? I hope the answer is clear from the images I chose to use that I believe that hell is an actual place. Yes, hell is an actual place. Yeah, 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 Todd. We, we get that. Thank you. We appreciate your moderateness. Thank you. But what about the whole lake of fire, never-ending torment bit? What about that bit? Here's a quote from Rob Bell. This is from his famous, some would say infamous book, Love Wins. Book that I love, I've read three times. First time I read it, I read it in one sitting. And then I read it again in the same sitting. And then I read it again two days ago in preparation for this sermon. What about the lake of fire? Eternal torment. For many in the modern world, the idea of hell is a holdover from primitive mythic religion that used fear and punishment to control people for all sorts of devious reasons. And their logical conclusion is that we've evolved beyond all that outdated belief, right? And I get that. I understand their aversion. And I as well have a hard time believing that somewhere down below the Earth's crust is a really crafty figure in red tights holding a three-pointed spear playing Pink Floyd records backwards and enjoying the hidden messages. Okay, 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 okay. So what does the Bible say? Well, there are 24 references to hell in the New Testament. And you know what kind of preacher I am. I read every single one. Yes, I did. There are um, 11, 12 references to Gehenna. What is Gehenna? All right, so 12 references to Gehenna. Gehenna comes from the Hebrew words, well, the Hebrew sentence, Gai ben Hinnom. Gai ben Hinnom. Gai ben Hinnom. Shortened to Gehenna. I have a picture for you of the last time I was in Gehenna four years ago filming a documentary. Uh, Ryan, grab that picture of Pastor Todd. There you go, that's hell. You're like, really? Well, that's Guy Ben Hinnom. I'm literally sitting inside a cave along the western side of the Hinnom Valley in which, in ancient times, um, pagan Jebusites would um, burn their children to the false god Molech. They used to do that in Gai Ben Hinnom. 
and the spirit of those idol worshipers, I'm not shy to say it. This is my church. I'll say what I believe. The spirit of those idol worshipers live in every parent who ever sacrificed their child on the altar of prosperity. Guy Ben Hinnom, the Hinnom Valley. Gehenna was the trash heap on the west side of the city of Jerusalem. When Guy Ben Hinnom, which is today a beautiful park, was excavated, what did they find? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years represented by stratum of garbage. Guy Ben Hinnom, Gehenna. Gehenna was Jerusalem's trash heap. Twelve references to it in the New Testament. In Matthew 5.22, it's referenced in regards to fire. You'll be sent there for calling someone a fool. In Matthew 5.29, Gehenna is referenced as a consequence for unrepentant sin. In Matthew 5.30, the same. In Matthew 10.28, Gehenna is used to strike fear in God's people so that they might fear him as judge. In Matthew 18.9, Gehenna is explained as horrible enough that you're better off cutting off your hand and entering into glory one-handed than having two hands and going into Gehenna. In Matthew 23, 15, Gehenna is called the future home of annoying religious people. In Matthew 23, 33, it is the destination of religious hypocrites. In Mark 9, 43 and 45, Gehenna is used as an echo of Matthew 18. Again, with the whole pluck out your eye business. In Mark 9, 47, we get the famous where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If you think of Gehenna as a garbage dump, you'll understand why the fire never died. In the Valley of Hinnom, they were always burning the garbage because the Jerusalemites were always adding more garbage to the pile. So the fires never went out and the worms never stopped eating the refuse on the edges of the Valley of Hinnom. The reference to weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth refers to the wild animals that used to roam around the edges of the Hinnom Valley, feasting on the leftovers. In Luke 12, again, Gehenna is a reason to fear God. All these references, by the way, the first 11, are references that Jesus made. The last reference to Gehenna in the New Testament is from James. It's in chapter 3, verse 6. And interestingly here, we see Gehenna affecting us now as our tongues are set on fire by Gehenna. The next word that shows up in the New Testament for hell, are you liking this so far? Is this enlightening? Is this worth your time? Aren't you so glad you came to church? Somebody shout in this house. All right. Second word, Hades. Hades is the Greek version of the Jewish word, the Hebrew word Sheol. When I preach you through the Old Testament, I've referenced the word Sheol, the underworlds. There's a very fuzzy idea of hell in Judaism. In fact, most scholars would say there really is no hell in Judaism. There is Sheol, the underworld, the place of the dead. It's not always a bad place. You're gathered to your ancestors. Where are my ancestors? Well, they're in the land of the dead. They're in Sheol. Okay, very fuzzy references to hell in Judaism. But in Greek, in the New Testament era, the word Sheol was updated to Hades. 
reference to the underworld or the realm of the dead. In Matthew eleven twenty three, 23, Capernaum is said it will end up there because of their unrepentance. In Matthew 16, 18, we're told that the gates of hell, Peter's told that the gates of hell will not prevail against. I'm not sure if it's Peter, Peter's faith, or the church that Peter will eventually be the first bishop of. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, the gates of Hades. In Luke 10, 15, we have an echo of Matthew 11 with a warning to Capernaum. In Luke 16, 23, Hades shows up in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember this story? Rich man is in torment in Hades, but he can see Lazarus resting in the bosom of Abraham. And he asks Father Abraham to send Lazarus to him with some water because he says he is in torment in these flames. In Acts 2.27, the author quotes Psalm 16, referencing Hades as the underworld. In Acts 2.31, Hades is referenced in reference to Jesus' resurrection. Thou didst not allow his soul to remain in Hades. In 1 Corinthians 15.55, Hades is the word used in the very famous, you've heard Pastor Todd trumpet it, almost every Easter, O death, where is thy sting? Where is thy victory, O grave? The word there is Hades. In Revelation 1.18, I love this, Jesus trumpets, says, I have the keys of death and hell. He has the keys of Hades. And in Revelation 6.8, the fourth horseman of the apocalypse is unleashed on the world and death and Hades follow in his train. In Revelation 20, verses 13 and 14, Hades is used in reference to the great white throne judgment. Let me read to you about that. It's important. Starting in Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life, he or she was thrown into the lake of fire. True story, first sermon Pastor Todd ever preached when I was 19 was from Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. There's one more reference to hell in the New Testament. It's found in 2 Peter 2, 4, and there the word is Tartarus. Tartarus, we know, if you've studied your Greek mythology, is literally the realm of the dead from Greek mythology, the place where the demigods were sent to be tortured by the Titans. So Peter refers to hell as Tartarus. Oh, and it's the place where the Nephilim gets sent. If you're watching for the first time, you're thinking, boy, this Jesus stuff is pretty weird. It's pretty weird. The Nephilim, of course, were the sons of God who, in the days before the flood, lay with the daughters of men and gave birth to the race of giants. Most scholars believe that when Peter refers to what God did to the Nephilim here, consigning them to Tartarus, to hell, he was doing so because of their disobedience in regards to the daughters of men. Are you confused? I hope you're at least invited to move from a dogmatic view of hell to one that is slightly more open-handed. Because if the New Testament contains these kinds 
of disparate and strange views of Hades, Gehenna, Hell, and Tartarus, I think it's reasonable that we should give ourselves a little wiggle room as well. Okay, 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 Todd, so what do we believe? All right, did you know that this is one of the things I can get fired for? This is one of the sermons I could get fired for. I can get fired if I preach or teach anything that is contrary to the Word of God, which is somewhat nebulous, so I'm pretty safe there, or anything which is against or contradicts Grace Community Church statement of belief. So here's what we believe about hell. Ryan, go to our uh, statement of belief. I'm covering my bases here, people. Yes, I am. At physical death, the believer enters immediately into eternal conscious fellowship with the Lord and awaits resurrection of his or her body to everlasting glory and blessing. At physical death, the unbeliever enters immediately into eternal conscious separation from the Lord and awaits the resurrection of his or her body to everlasting suffering. How does that make you feel? It makes me feel sick to my stomach. And I would suggest that if anyone reads those words and it does not make them sick to their stomach, there is something very, very wrong. So, 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 what are you saying, Todd? Is this the last sermon you'll ever preach at our church? Is there an actual hell? Wouldn't that be hilarious? Back from vacation, one sermon, off he goes. That'd be awesome. So is there an actual hell? Let me explain how I deal with this in the hopes that maybe it will help you too. So my biggest problem with the statement on our website relates to the big words that you see there in bold. Note that I'm not saying I don't believe it. Note that I'm not saying I think it's wrong. I have a very big problem with these words. And you should too, because they are horrific. Eternal, conscious, separation, everlasting suffering. Have you ever found yourself thinking that it doesn't seem just or fair that a good God would punish someone eternally for a sinful act that was temporal? Anybody besides me and Nikki ever felt that way? Pretty weird, right? Doesn't seem right, doesn't seem fair. No matter how bad the sin, no matter how horrific the consequences, I think we would all agree that if that sin was committed within the context of space-time, then the ripple effect of that sin is bound within the limits of space-time. It has temporal consequences. Therefore, a just and good God could in no way punish forever somebody who had committed an act that did not echo forever. I hope at least some of you are with me. So let's unpack these difficult words that make me sick. Eternal. So here's the question I ask myself when dealing with a word as horrific as this. Do I believe that humans have been built for eternity? Okay, you have to answer that question yourself. Do you believe that humans have been built for eternity or not? If we have been built for eternity, then our actions echo into eternity. And let me here remind you that sin is not primarily an action. 
Sin is not primarily an omission. Sin is primarily a state of being from which actions flow. You could take that one to the bank. Do you agree sin is not primarily an action? It's a state of being from which your actions flow. Therefore, if a human being is an eternal being in some sense, and if that human being was resolutely, unrepentantly possessed of a sinful way of being, then it makes perfect sense to me that the consequences of that eternal being's sinful way of being would be eternal. Conscious. This is, I think, the toughest. When you read conscious, some, like ours is kind of friendly, some say eternal conscious torment. If you're really like going for it, I'm like, yay, everyone's gonna come to our church, awesome. Eternal conscious torment. So we think of someone lying awake in a pool of fire forever. Is, is this, or is this not an absolutely horrific image to contemplate? It should make you recoil in horror. What if we think about the word conscious as in a conscious decision? This is the most helpful quote I have ever read on hell. And in fact, I think the rest of the quotes in this entire sermon are from this one great book by C.S. Lewis that I read every single year. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it will be opened. Feel free to give him praise in this house. Hallelujah, Lord. Receive it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it will be opened. C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce. All who are in hell, choose it. More on that in a minute. Separation. How do I deal with this horrible word? Do you believe God exists and that he made everything that is, including you, to be his friend forever or not? This is how I answer this horrific question. Do I really believe that God made everything that is, including me and you, to be his friend forever or not? Make your decision. If you don't believe it, let's talk about the raptors. There's plenty of other things we can talk about. Good pizza, the government, I don't know. Pick your poison. If you do believe that God made everything that is including you and me to be his friends forever, then if you were made, receive it. If you were made by God for God, then separation from him forever would be the worst thing ever. Much worse than even a pool of fire that never went out. Why do we use the imagery of a pool of fire that never goes out? Because the truth of separation from God is just so horrible that there are no other words that even begin to do it justice. 
But, but, but why must God separate himself and his friends from evil? Why? Get a load of this. Either the day must come when joy prevails, receive it, and all the makers of misery are no longer able to infect it, or else forever and ever the makers of misery can destroy in others the happiness they reject for themselves. Again, C.S. Lewis from The Great Divorce. Let me give you a little foretaste of some of the key takeaways from the passage we're going to study here in just a moment. There are no timid people in God's neighborhood. There are no faithless people. There is no one in God's neighborhood who is detestable. There are no murderers. No one who is sexually unhinged. No one who inoculates themselves from reality. Did I just strike fear in your heart? I hope so, in Jesus' name. There is no one in God's neighborhood who inoculates themselves from reality. I'll explain to you how I came to that in a few moments. There, it gets worse. There is no one in God's neighborhood who is self-obsessed. Instagram, anyone? Social climbing, anyone? Vogue magazine, anyone? Stop me if I'm boring you. There is no one in God's neighborhood who is self-obsessed. There is no one who is false. Why? Oh, receive it, church. Oh, receive it, church, because God's neighborhood is new. It's earthy. It's organized. It's good. It's no longer bad. It's trusting. It's secure. It is thirstily persevering. It is gratuitously good. I'm sh- I'll talk in a minute about what it means to be gratuitously good. In the world to come, evil no longer holds good hostage. So anyone who wants to stay evil has got to go. Somebody say amen in this house. All right? In the world to come. Okay, when the New Testament talks about eternal life, the phrase beneath the phrase is the world to come which is a Jewish phrase. And all the fathers and mothers of Christianity were Jewish. Thanks, Jules. So glad you're here. And so, the word for the world to come is olam haba. Literally olam, the world, haba, that is coming. In the worlds to come, evil no longer gets to hold good hostage. So if you are determined to stay evil, you gotta go. You gotta go. Does anybody want to live next to a rapist forever? Somebody answer me. Somebody say it louder. No! Nobody wants to live next to a child molester forever. Nobody wants to live next to an evil corporate baron forever. Am I right? Wave at me or nod at me. Give me some feedback if you believe I'm right. Okay, evil will not have its way in the world to come. How do I know? Because of our root text for tonight. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. You should have it on screen as I read it to you. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Hine, ani ose hakol chadash. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have all things, and I will be his God, and she will be my daughter. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually unhinged, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Beneath the question, is there an actual hell, lies a follow-up statement, and it is this, because I really don't want to go there if there is. So because of Jesus, by his spirit, I want to invite you to learn to live in God's neighborhood. Because if you do, you'll be fine. If you don't, you're hellbound. Son, he said, you cannot in your present state understand eternity. That is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future blessing can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Somebody shout in this house! And of some sinful pleasure, they say, let me have but this, and I'll take the consequences. Little dreaming how damnation will spread back and back into their past and contaminate the pleasures of sin. Do you have goosebumps, church? Both processes begin even before death. The good man's past begins to change so that his forgiven sins and remembered sorrows take on the quality of heaven. The bad man's past already conforms to his badness and is filled only with dreariness. And that is why the blessed will say, we have never lived anywhere except in heaven. And the lost will say, we were always in hell. And they both will speak truly. C.S. Lewis, the great divorce. Does anyone else in this house has goosebumps like Pastor Todd in this moment? Oh, thank God. You want to be from God's neighborhood, so let me tell you about God's neighborhood real quick. We're almost done. Verse 1. God's neighborhood is kainos new. Kainos new is the best word for new in the New Testament. It's not naos. Naos is new in regards to time. Kainos is new in regards to form. I could shout. I could shout. God's neighborhood is kainos new. So... Embrace newness every day. Where's my drummer when I need him? Skadah! 
Where's my mic so I can drop it? Thump. When's the last time you embraced something new? Just asking for a friend. Verse 2, God's neighborhood is earthy. Oh, this is the best point. All you Guelph hippie environmentalists are going to love this point. And this is going to make Pastor Todd change his life more than he already is, which makes me profoundly uncomfortable, which all faithful Bible preaching should always do. It should always make you at least a little bit uncomfortable. God's neighborhood is earthy. It will be here. How do we know? Receive it! Because the new Jerusalem is coming down to earth from heaven. Did you ever miss that one? The casual reading of the text? We don't float up to the new Jerusalem to hang out eating cream cheese on a cloud strumming a harp. No. Oh, the new Jerusalem is being prepared by Jesus the builder right now. And one day it will come down from heaven to earth. You are living today in and on a world that will one day be the world to come. I hope that settles once and for all any tension that ever existed between Christians who thought environmentalism was somehow less than Christian. If that's you, repent. Because heaven comes to earth. And if you're living today on the world that will one day be the world to come, it seems very logical to me that we ought to treat it that way. Everybody go get a compost. Cheryl, I even thought about bottled water. And I switched to my swells years ago. And I have so far to go. Are you liking this? Can I take my liberty and not rush? Wave at me if I can take my liberty and not rush. Okay. Verse 2, part B, God's neighborhood is organized. Oh, this is so good. This is so rich. I don't even know what to do with myself. I want to jump out of my skin. The new Jerusalem is coming down from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband, except adorned means this in the original language, having been systemed. <laughs> there is a rhythm to grace. Find it! If you want to live in God's neighborhood, you are not permitted to go through life on autopilot. You are required to discover the rhythm of God's organized universe, the universe so that you can learn to dance with it. God's neighborhood is good. Verse 3. Why? Because God lives there. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Except the word for tabernacle, mishkan, comes from the Hebrew root word, shchuna, which means neighborhood. <laughs> Are you smiling behind your masks? <laughs> Be you worship leaders better blow the roof off this house in a minute. Behold, the neighborhood of God is with people. I told you the Bible is scary. Act like God lives next door. Holy, 
I don't even know what to say. Holy cow. How much would your life change if God lived next door? No more fighting over lawn clippings. No more arguing over who shoveled the sidewalk and who didn't. Lots of lending of eggs and exchanging of baked goods. Am I right? Remember, there's no badness allowed. Revelation 21, verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Ki hareshonot chalfu ve'enam. Ki hareshonot, for the first things, chalfu, have disappeared ve'enam, and they are not anymore. There's no more tears, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain in God's neighborhood because he makes all things new. So you must root out any badness that remains in your heart. And yes, this is the work of a lifetime. Because he makes all things new, you ought to trust him, verse 5. Why? Because these words are trustworthy and true. And because you can trust him, you ought to learn to live a secure kind of life because in the words of verse 6, it is done. It's done. You know what's wonderful? In the Greek, it is done is gegonen. And gegonen means it has become. Isn't that so much better than it's done? It has become. There is a beginning at the end of all things. Somebody shout. The end is not the end. The end is the beginning. God's new way is reality now. So live like a thirsty perseverer. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment, gratuitously. The one who conquers will have all things, not just this heritage, they will have all things. And I will be his God and she will be my daughter. You're like, Todd, you changed it to make it egalitarian. Because I'm an egalitarian. All you ladies should have screamed at me right there. Thank you, Pastor Todd! Anytime you can change the text to be a little more egalitarian without compromising the content of the text, I say go for it. Note that he gives of the spring of the water of life. Did you know that the Gihon Spring, the source of life for the city of Jerusalem for thousands of years, still flows beneath the city today, and I have swum in it. I have crawled into its headwaters and washed myself there. The spring of life still flows beneath the city of God that will one day be replaced by the city of God with a spring that is no longer named the Gihon, but which is named the spring of the water of life. And if you've heard better news than that in the last week, let me know about it. Because he will give to you of that spring, best word in the whole sermon, gratuitously. You know, gratuitously means more than is reasonable. So enough already with button-down Christianity. Enough already with lives that are more staid than they are excitable. Enough already with Christians who seem boring. Enough already with so-called Jesus followers whose lives are nothing that anyone in the world wants to emulate. Enough already. Because he has promised to give to you from the spring of the water of life gratuitously. Unreasonably. Too much. 
He's out of control with how much life he's giving you. So uh, start expecting more if you want to live like you're from God's neighborhood. Because your father is good and his neighborhood is shalom. Which is why um, you don't want to uh, be timid. In fact, you don't get to stay timid. Did you know that cowardly is timid? Doesn't that make it much worse? Whoever thought that being timid is a damnable offense? It is. Repent, all you timid people. You're like, Pastor Todd, it's, it's the Bible. There's no timid people or faithless people. I don't even need to say it. Stop being faithless. If you want to keep on doing detestable things, murdering people, being sexually unhinged, isn't that much more helpful than immoral? Like, what is immoral? You know, people have different views of morality. You may have grown up in churches where it's like, if you even kissed a girl, you're in trouble. Okay, so let's just acknowledge that there's different views of morality, what's acceptable and what's not. Let's just say sometimes it's hard to define what's moral, what's immoral. But unhinged? Everybody knows what unhinged means. You know it when you see it. Don't be it. Next point. Man, this is so good. Um, if you want to keep numbing yourself like a drug addict or the sorcerers of antiquity to the reality of life, how horrifying is this sermon? Super horrifying. You're welcome. You're like, sorcerers, I'm good. I don't even own a broomstick. I'm fine. I don't send my kids out on Halloween. We're good. We're good. Isn't it so pathetic that organized Christianity has reduced this to that for hundreds of years? And you check that one off the list. Ooh, I'm not a sorcerer. I'm good. Maybe you are. Because a sorcerer literally in the Greek is a drugger. A drugger. Someone who drugs themselves, inoculates themselves to the reality of life. Last time I checked, almost everybody you know is busily inoculating themselves from the horrors of life in the fallen West. Why? Because they're already in hell. They know it. They won't acknowledge it. So they're doing everything they can to numb the pain. No more sorcerers in God's neighborhood. Um, if you want to stay self-obsessed, you know, more concerned with your social media platform or with your standing in popular society than you are with um, joining God in his mission to bring shalom into the world, uh, you, you're, you're, you're in trouble. If you insist on staying false, if you do any of these things, there is no room for you in God's neighborhood. But if you will bend the knee in love to the one who loved you first, then this is the picture of your someday. Here is um, the closing moments of the last battle. So they ran faster and faster till it was more like flying than running. And even the eagle overhead was going no faster than they. They went through winding valley after winding valley and up the steep sides of hills and faster than ever down the other sides, following the river and sometimes crossing it and skimming across mountain lakes as if they were living speedboats, till at last at the far end of one long lake which looked as blue as turquoise they saw a smooth green hill. Its sides were as steep as the sides of a pyramid around the very top of it ran a green wall, but above the wall rose the branches of trees whose leaves looked like silver and their fruit like gold. 
Further up and farther in roared the unicorn, and no one held back. They charged straight at the foot of the hill and then found themselves running up it almost as water from a broken wave runs up a rock out at the point of some bay. Though the slope was nearly as steep as the roof of a house and the grass was smooth as a bowling green, no one slipped. Only when they had reached the very top did they slow up. That was because they found themselves facing two great golden gates. And for a moment, none of them was bold enough to try if the gates would open. They all felt just as they had about the fruit. Dare we? Is it right? Can it be meant for us? But while they were standing thus, a great horn, wonderfully loud and sweet, blew from somewhere inside that walled garden, and the gates swung open. Tyrion stood holding his breath and wondering who would come out. And what came out was the last thing he had expected, a little sleek, bright-eyed talking mouse with a red feather stuck in a circlet on its head and its left paw resting on a long sword. It bowed a most beautiful bow and said in its shrill voice, Welcome in the lion's name. Come further up and farther in. Then Tyrion saw King Peter and King Edmund and Queen Lucy rush forward to kneel down and greet the mouse, and they all cried out, Reap a cheap! And Tyrion breathed fast with the sheer wonder of it, for now he knew that he was looking at one of the great heroes of Narnia. Reepicheep, the mouse who had fought at the great battle of Beruna and afterwards sailed to the world's end with King Caspian the seafarer. But before he had had much time to think of this, he felt two strong arms thrown about him and felt a bearded kiss on his cheeks and heard a well-remembered voice saying, What lad, art thicker and taller since last I touched thee? It was his own father, the good king Erlian. But not as Tyrion had seen him last when they brought him home pale and wounded from his fight with the giants, nor even as Tyrion remembered him in his later years when he was a gray-headed warrior. This was his father, young and merry, as he could just remember him from very early days when he himself had been a little boy, playing games with his father in the castle garden at Caerparavel, just before bedtime on summer evenings. The very smell of the bread and milk he used to have for supper came back to him. Jewel thought to himself, I will leave them to talk for a little, and then I will go and greet the good king early, and many a bright apple he has given me when I was but a colt. Animals are still thinking about food in the new earth. But next moment he had something else to think of, for out of the gateway there came a horse so mighty and noble that even a unicorn might feel shy in its presence, a great winged horse. It looked a moment at the Lord Diggory and the Lady Polly and neighed out, What cousins? And they both shouted, Fledge! Good old Fledge! And rushed to kiss it. But by now the mouse was again urging them to come in. So all of them passed in through the golden gates into the delicious smell that blew towards them out of that garden and into the cool mixture of sunlight and shadow under the trees, walking on springy turf that was all dotted with white flowers. The very first thing which struck everyone was that the place was far larger than it had seemed from outside. But no one had time to think about that, for people were coming up to meet the newcomers from every direction. Everyone you had ever heard of, if you knew the history of these countries, seemed to be there. There was Glimfeather, the Owl, and Puddleglum, the Marshwiggle, and King Rillian, the Disenchanted, and his mother, the Star's Daughter, and his great father, Caspian himself. And close beside him were the Lord Drinian, and the Lord Baron, and Trumpkin, the Dwarf, and Truffle Hunter, the Good Badger, with Glenstorm, the Centaur, and a hundred other heroes of the Great War of Deliverance. And then from another side came Kor, the King of Arkenland, with King Loon, his father, and his wife, Queen Aravis, and the brave Prince. Corrin Thunderfist, his brother, and Bree the horse, and Huynh the mare. And then, which was a wonder beyond all wonders to Tyrion, there came from further away in the past the two great beavers and Tumnus the fawn. I believe this to be Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And there was a greeting and a kissing and a handshaking, and old jokes revived. You've no idea how good an old joke sounds when you take it out again after a rest of five or six hundred years. And the whole company moved forward to the center of the orchard where the phoenix sat in a tree and looked down upon them all. 
wall and at the foot of that tree were two thrones and in those two thrones a king and queen so great and beautiful that everyone bowed down before them as well they might for these two were King Frank and Queen Helen from whom all the ancient kings of Narnia and Arkenland are descended and Tyrion felt as you would feel if you were brought before Adam and Eve in all their glory about half an hour later, it might have been half a hundred years later, for time is not like that time there as it is here. Lucy stood with her dear friend, her oldest Narnian friend, the Fontumnus, looking down over the wall of that garden and seeing all Narnia spread out below. When you looked down, you found that this hill was much higher than you had thought. It sank down with shining cliffs thousands of feet below them, and trees in that lower world looked no bigger than grains of green salt. Then she turned inward again and stood with her back to the wall and looked at the garden. I see, she said at last, thoughtfully. I see it now. This garden is like the stable. It is far bigger outside than it was. It's far bigger inside than it was outside. Of course, daughter of Eve, said the fawn. The further up and the farther in you go, the bigger everything gets. The inside is larger than the outside. Lucy looked hard at the garden and saw that it was not really a garden at all, but a whole world with its own rivers and woods and sea and mountains. But they were not strange. She knew them all. I see, she said, this is still Narnia and more real and more beautiful than Narnia down below, just as it was more real and more beautiful than Narnia outside the stable door. I see, world within world, Narnia within Narnia. Yes, said Mr. Tumnus, like an onion, except as you go in and in, each circle is larger than the last. And Lucy looked this way and that and soon found that a new and beautiful thing had happened to her. Whatever she looked at, however far away it might be, once she had fixed her eyes steadily on it, became quite clear and close, as if she were looking through a telescope. She could see the whole southern desert and beyond it the great city of Tashban. To eastward she could see Caraparavel on the edge of the sea in the very window of the room that had once been her own. And far out to sea she could discover the islands, island after island to the end of the world. And beyond the end the huge mountain which they had called Aslan's country. But now she saw that it was a part of a great chain of mountains which ringed the whole world round. In front of her it seemed to come quite close. Then she looked to her left and saw what she took to be a great bank of brightly colored cloud cut off from them by a gap. But she looked harder and saw that it was not a cloud at all, but a real land. And when she had fixed her eyes on one particular spot, she at once cried out, Peter, Edmund, come look, come quickly. And they came and looked, for their eyes also had become like hers. Why, exclaimed Peter, it's England. And that's the house itself, Professor Kirk's old home in the country where all our adventures began. I thought that house had been destroyed, said Edmund. So it was, said the fawn. But you are now looking at the England within England. The real England. Just as this is the real Narnia. And in that inner England, no good thing is destroyed. Suddenly they shifted their eyes to another spot and then Peter and Edmund and Lucy gasped with amazement and shouted out and began waving. For there they saw their own father and mother waving back at them across the great deep valley. It was like when you see people waving at you from the deck of a big ship when you were waiting on the key to meet them. How can we get to them, said Lucy. That is easy, said Tumnus. That country and this country, all the real countries, are only spurs jutting out from the great mountains of Aslan. We have only to walk along the ridge, upward and inward, till it joins on. And listen, there is King Frank's horn. We must all go up. And soon they found themselves all walking together and a great bright procession it was up towards mountains higher than you could see in this world, even if they were there to be seen. But there was no snow on those mountains. There were forests and green slopes and sweet orchards and flashing waterfalls, one above the other, going up 
forever, and the land they were walking on grew narrower all the time, with a deep valley on each side, and across that valley the land which was the real England grew nearer and nearer. The light ahead was growing stronger. Lucy saw that a great series of many-colored cliffs led up in front of them like a giant's staircase. And then she forgot everything else. Because Aslan himself was coming, leaping down from cliff to cliff like a living cataract of power and beauty. And the very first person whom Aslan called to him was Puzzle, the donkey. You never saw a donkey look feebler and sillier than Puzzle did as he walked up to Aslan. And he looked beside Aslan as small as a kitten looks beside a St. Bernard. The lion bowed down his head and whispered something to Puzzle, at which his long ears went down. But then he said something else, at which the ears perked up again. The humans could not hear what was said either time. Then Aslan looked at them and said, You do not yet look as happy as I mean you to be. Lucy said, We are afraid of being sent away. And you have sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leapt, and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan. Your father and your mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream has ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on and on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. So let's make sure we live in the right neighborhood.